we've put together a brand new sample of RAR Premium. So if you've been on the fence about joining us inside RAR Premium, you can get a free sample now to see if it's a good fit for your family. To get that free sample, go to readaloudrevival.com slash sample or just text the word RAR sample like it's all squished together in one word. <laughs> RAR sample to the number 33777. Okay, here's the show. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here. You know, before I launch into this 100th episode of the Read Aloud Revival podcast, I have to take a second to thank you for listening. You aren't going to believe this. We just crossed over 4 million downloads on the Read Aloud Revival podcast, which is just sort of astonishing and really heartwarming and exciting to think of how many families all over the world are getting inspired and encouraged in connecting with their kids through books. Thank you for being a part of our wonderful community. And here's episode 100. listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that helps you make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. It's really fun to be here with you today. You've got episode 100. We have a special show for you today. I know so many of you are fans of Jeannie Birdsall's The Penderwick Series just like my own family. And today I get to share with you a conversation with the author and creator of The Penderwicks. Kick back and listen to a conversation I had with the one and only Jeannie Birdsall. I won't even make you wait for it. Here it is. Jeannie Birdsall is a New York Times bestselling author. Perhaps you're familiar with the Penderwick series. I'm sure you are. These are the middle grade novels that have collected a slew of awards, including the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. She also writes picture books for younger children, including Flora's Very Windy Day, Lucky and Squash, and My Favorite Pets by Gus W. from Ms. Smolinski's class. She lives in Massachusetts with a Boston Terrier named, get this, Cagney. <laughs> Jeannie, we are so thrilled to have you on the Read Aloud Revival podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for having me. I'm delighted. And I just want to put in a plug to thank you for hosting the interview I did with Nate Wilson a few years ago. Nate's one of my favorite people and also one of my favorite authors. So it's a big pleasure to have that hosted on your website. Oh, and it's a mutual feeling because he is one of my favorite people and favorite authors as well. Hey, listeners, we'll put a link to that. There's a video and also an audio recording. You can do it either way. Listening to Andy Wilson, author of a 100 Cupboard series, Outlaws of Time, and a whole slew of others, and our very own Janie Birdsall, talking about their writing. And it's so it's such a good conversation. It's so interesting. They talk about their writing process and kind of what they're trying to do through their books and the things that just bubble up when two writers start talking about writing. So it's really fun. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, so we have a lot of diehard <laughs> Penderwix fans, not just in my home, but also listening on the podcast, who are really excited to hear from you. So maybe we should just start from the top. When did the first Penderwix book come out? What year was that? It came out in 2005. It was not only the first Penderwix book, but also the first book I'd ever tried to write on my own. And so I think I started trying to visualize how to write a book and those characters in the late 90s. So the Penderwicks have been living inside my brain for 20 years now, but they've only been in the wide world published since 2005, which is 13 years. So the very first book that you ever tried to write was the very first book that won the very first Pendewix book, which ended up winning a National Book Award. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. It was insane. And part of it, I think, was that I was so certain that it wouldn't even get published that I let myself do exactly what I wanted 
And instead of trying to figure out what the market would like or what people would respond to, I had this very long plan that I would learn to write with the first one, just do exactly what I wanted. And then maybe by the third book, I'd know enough what I was doing. And then they published the whole series. But there's that following your instincts thing that I allow myself to do. And frankly, my husband allowed me to do because he didn't freak out that I wasn't making money while I was doing this, <laughs> which is, you know, mm-hmm. that's pretty important. And yeah. I, I try to mention that for all the young mothers out there who are working full-time jobs, taking care of their children and trying to write a book or older mothers. Yeah. Yeah. Because you wrote that first book, I think 41. Is that right? I think I heard you say that. And that might have been on the interview with Andy Wilson, or maybe I've heard it somewhere else. But you wrote your first book at 41, I think. Is that right? Well, I no, I started writing altogether at 41. Wow, it might okay. have been 42. I can't remember. But it was when I got together with my husband. He had known me in high school. And I was doing photography very, very seriously and had been. And he said, I remember you as a writer which I didn't, but he he encouraged me and we started working on a book together, which did, didn't really go anywhere. And then we got married. It's, it's a very romantic story. And then five or so years into the marriage, four or something, I said, I've always wanted to write a children's book. And he said, go for it. Wow. So yeah, that was all in my 40s. In 2005, when the first book was published, I was 54 already, Okay. which is Another thing I point out to people who are frantic in their 30s when they haven't had success yet. Yes, because it's um, so encouraging to hear. I love stories. And we have a lot of both young aspiring writers who are kids listening, but also a lot of mothers listening and fathers, mm -hmm. I'm sure, too, who are aspiring writers or writing and trying to navigate that water. And so that's really inspiring, I think, to hear. Because yeah. you know, the success of the Penderwicks, not just the success in that they are actually really, really best-selling books, but also just that they're such wonderful books. I think so many of us feel like, of course, when you're reading a book that you love, like the pen, any of the Penderwicks books, they read like you just sat down and wrote them front to back, <laughs> you know, in one sitting, uh, like it all just came out as beautiful as it is. And of course, I know that's not what happened, but that's what it feels like when you're reading a book that's so well-written. And so then to hear about the backstory of what was going on in the background of your life, that's really inspiring. Thank you for putting it that way. I, I, I don't think anyone's ever said that to me before, that it sounds like I sat down and wrote it in one city. I would never have even thought to try to do that. But <laughs> I think one of the things that might lend itself to that is as a reader, the thing I really dislike in a book is when all of a sudden I'm pulled out of the story and made to pay attention to the author or something's wrong historically or something like that. And I, so I work really, really, really hard to try, and I, I hope I do, to keep you so lost in that world that it does seem like it's just happening in front of you. And I'm never waving my hand and saying, here I am, here I am. Well, I think that comes through. I mean, these are the kind of books that we read and reread. Actually, I think there's a post of me on Instagram last summer where I was <laughs> watching my kids play in the pool. And I said, I know, I've read this. It was the first Penerick's book. I've read this book so many times, but this is how I'm spending my afternoon, just rereading it because it does feel mm. like you just get lost in there. You don't remember where you are. You never get pulled out of the story. So tell me about writing and planning, like when you were, I don't know, it's probably changed, I would imagine, from the first book to your now new book, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but that releases today. So if you're listening to this and you're mm -hmm. thinking, yeah, when's the fifth Penderwicks book coming out? Yeah, you want to head to a bookstore today because you can get your hands on it today, May 15th, 2018. But I'm sure your process has changed. But what do you plan a lot? Do you outline? Can you talk a little bit about how you how your process, what your process looks like when you start writing a new book? It hasn't changed that much because I'm still the kind of writer. I've just learned a lot and trying to make the process a little more streamlined. Uh, it took me 10 years to go from dreaming up the Penderwicks to having it published. So I'm more streamlined than that. I do not make outlines. The most, because I, because 
I hated making lines in school. <laughs> yeah, totally. I hated that so much. I can still I can still picture one in the A, A and then the little A and then my, but also because I am um writers can sort of very generally split themselves into two groups which are people character driven or plot driven and then there are of course a lot of people that go back and forth between them. Nate of course is one of them. But my, I know when I start a book, I know who's in it. I know who's going to be the one driving that book. And I know where she and or he is going to end up. But it's not always clear to me how, what's going to happen with, I'll just say her at this point, even though often it was Jeffrey or Ben too, how she was going to get there, what was going to happen, what was going to happen to all the people around her. And when... Like the last book, I know we aren't talking about it yet, but Lydia, who was just a toddler in the fourth book, was is now an 11-year-old. I had to write a lot before I really got to know her, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I often, and I get to know people through how they interact with other people. So I had to learn more about the people around her. And then as I worked that through, then I could go back to the beginning and start over again. So my books are very emotion-driven. But the fourth book, I had known since I wrote the first book that there was a wound between two of the sisters, Batty and Skye, and I knew why it was there. And in the fourth book, I knew that I was going to work on them starting to heal that wound. So that's, I can't remember exactly, but that's where I knew I was going with that. But also, I was always working on this arc to get to the fifth book. So I was always keeping Rosalind and Tommy in the loop. I always was keeping Sky and Jeffrey, you know, where they were going. I was progressing Jane's writing career and Batty's love of music. She doesn't even learn to love music until the second book, but that was essential to get her to the fifth. So within one of the ways I think about these books and, and that I've written them and structured them is really that they're one big giant book. So the first three books I think of as Act One, if we're talking about the theater, and the fourth book is Act Two, and then the fifth book is Act Three. Oh, that's so good. Okay, because that's one of the things I wanted to ask you is when you were writing that first book, did you know it was going to be a series? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And was that like publisher driven or is that like in your own heart? You knew this was going to be a series. There was more stories. Oh, yeah. No, that was in my own heart because I make it just like I said earlier about as like I read as a reader. I make every decision I make as a writer is based on how I read. And I, I consider myself much more of a reader than a writer. I mean, my identity, because I've been reading all my life, reading voraciously and rereading voraciously, and I still do probably up to four books a week. So the books that I loved as a child were series. And, and that, that's always what I wanted to read. And, and if, they, if there wasn't a series, I would read everything by that author anyway, like with Louisa May Alcott, just to feel like I was staying in the same world. But Narnia and the Borrowers, Inez Bits, the Bastable Kids, all that stuff was series. So it was not publisher-driven. And I have a funny story to tell about that. My editor just told me, well, she told, she, she told it as an anecdote and she just told me this in the last year. After all these years, the same editor I've been working with in the beginning, she was talking about how when we were trying to come up with a title for the first book and she wanted this subtitle and I said, well, are we going to have subtitles for all the rest of the books? Do we want to worry about consistency? And she said, oh, well, we'll worry about that when we get there. And what she was really thinking is, honey, you're never going to get five bucks out of this. It's not going to sell well enough. I love this book. I love you. But everybody thinks they're going to get to keep writing. And it rarely yeah. happens. So it, it was the opposite of publisher driven. Oh, that's they were, so funny. Yeah. And so if the, if the National Book Award, if I hadn't won the National Book Award, I don't know what would have happened. Except that the indie booksellers long before that had already picked it up and were running with it. So I might have been able to be okay anyway. But Michelle stands up in front of marketing and laughs about me saying that and her turning me down. And then she holds up the fifth book and says she did it. (laughs) That's so fun. 
have a local bookstore that's three blocks from my house, and anyone who wants a signed copy can get it through them. Oh, and it's, awesome. it's on my web It's on my website, so if they want to go there, they just have to call them or email them or something. I don't know how that works, and then and then tell them who I wanted to sign it to, and then the bookstore ships it out. Oh, great. What's the name of the bookstore? Broadside Bookshop. Okay, great. We'll put a link in our show notes as well so people can find those because that is fantastic. I love it. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to ask you, well, actually some of the kids who wrote in, I asked on Facebook and in our premium member forum, I asked, what do you want me to ask Jeannie Birdsall when she's on the show? And one of the questions was, what books inspired your writing? And I think we all know Little Women, of course. But then you mentioned like the Bastables and what else did you just now mention? C.S. Lewis, the Narnia yes. series. Yes. Yeah. And it doesn't really make sense that they they inspired me. I mean, there's the, the Penderwicks are not an alternate reality or anything like that. And certainly I don't, I'm just, I'm not comparing myself to see if he inspired me. I mean, the guy, he's just, but that, but what he did of being able to want children to live in that world was so inspiring and magical. I remember being in fifth grade and out in the recess with my friend Susan, and we would say, if we just go past that tree, we'll be in Narnia. And we knew it wouldn't happen, but somehow we weren't absolutely positive it wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. That in between, and that's that's what he's done. That's what he did for people. I also, the Secret Garden was a big influence, just in terms of what it's like to have space and have beautiful things around you when you're a child. Mm-hmm. When I was writing the first book, I I said it's a love letter to the books I loved as a child. Dylan is 13, and she wants to know if the Penderwicks are based on your life, or are they more a life you wanted to live, or something else? They were much closer to a life I wanted to live. They were absolutely not based on my life. Okay, Finnegan is seven and wants to know who your favorite character in the series is. He says Skye is his favorite character. Sky is his, Finnegan is a boy, and Sky is his favorite character. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I always have the same answer, which is that I can't have a favorite. But what I can say is the ones that I relate to the best. So with now six siblings, Rosalind is not very much like me at all. She, I had to make up a lot because my older sister, she's the older sister I would have loved to have had. Sky, but I mean, there have to be parts of me in there. Other, well, if I couldn't have written her, Sky and Batty, Batty's probably closest to me. But Sky has my temper, and also the tendency to see the world in black and white. Mm-hmm. That's me kicking this the trees when she gets annoyed. That's definitely me. I've <laughs> my temper has been moderated as I've gotten older, but it was took a lot of work to. <laughs> To get it there, and it was only because I kept breaking my toes, punching the trees, kicking the trees. And Jane, of course, is just, she's the most fun to write because she's a writer, and so I just give her all my opinions. Yeah, I love it. And also, <laughs> she might yeah, be my favorite, and also, yeah. Yeah, and also the, the mother's death influenced her in a different way that made her less scarred in a way. Rosalind had to become the mom, and Sky lost her anchor in the family. And Batty never had a mom until Leantha came in. But Jane dove into her imagination, which is, of course, what I did. And But as the rest of the family heals around her, Jane still has her imagination. So she was fun to write because there were no real central scars with her. I mean, the biggest thing she learns is like, don't trust cute boys on skateboards. <laughs> <laughs> which is an important lesson to learn. Which is an, it is an important <laughs> lesson to learn for all of us. Right. Both Heather and Viv have a similar question. They're, I know Heather's 11. I'm not sure how old Viv is, but they want to know if you based any of the sisters off of real people 
Viv says, how did you make your characters so relatable and realistic? Well, they, I mean, they took pieces of me from them. I don't base anybody on a real person, but I definitely, for some characters, have touchstones that I use as kind of a central magnet so that the I can know if the character is getting too far away from that person. With Mr. Penderwick, it is my husband does that for me. He's that kind of parent. And I have a great story that I always tell about him. My husband's children, who are now mine too, I'm just so lucky. They're quite grown up. They're in their mid to late 30s now. David was visiting us, oh, I guess about 10 years ago. And he and I were standing at the kitchen window looking into our back garden. And my husband, his dad, was on the bench reading a newspaper with it sort of in his face. And our dog, Cagney, was still quite young at the time, was racing around and around and around and around and around and barking and barking and barking and barking and barking and barking. And David turned to me, he said, now you know what our childhood was like. <laughs> and that was just, that was just, it was just exactly what I wanted for Mr. Penderwick and that, that, and when David said that, it, it nailed what I'd put into Mr. Penderwick is that ability to keep his children safe, that they always know he's there. They always know he won't let them do anything so terrible, but that he doesn't monitor their every moment. Mm-hmm. He gives them a lot of freedom. We've talked, we've had an episode before on the podcast about parents in literature that inspire us as parents. And so I had a guest, Greta Eskridon, we were talking about the different parents in literature who inspire us as we're reading these books with our kids, make us think, I want to be like that. And I felt that way several times about Mr. Penderwick because he's got that steady, rock solid, completely loving nature. And yet, just like you said, he doesn't micromanage his kids or try to keep them from making any mistakes at all. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, we have two grandchildren now, daughters who live only 20 minutes from us. Again, lucky, 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 lucky. They're seven and five, and it's so much fun to see to see him with them. When it's just the two of us, my husband and me with the girls, I just get on the floor and play. I become like another six-year-old with them. But he's he always has these very calm ways of figuring out directing things, but without controlling them. I guess that's what he does. Yeah. And so he'll he'll just kind of pick a step on a different path and they'll go whoosh along that path. And I'm just sort of clomping along behind everybody. Lisa Gustafson wants to know how you choose which viewpoint to write from. The first book was The Family. They're a chorus. And the whole real, it took me a while. It maybe took me until I was reading, writing the second book to understand that what I was always writing about was family. The whole point of the books for me is that if you have this healthy family, these healthy people who love each other, which is Mr. Penderwick and his four daughters and the girls, that that family continues to expand. So the normal, I shouldn't say normal, but the more usual way of writing the first book would have been to have it be Jeffrey's book and that Jeffrey needs to be rescued from his life and he finds a way and then Jeffrey gets rescued and then the book is done. Mm -hmm. But what I was writing about was let's make this family bigger which is what I believe in, is that you keep a safe enough hub and if you take good enough care of yourself, meaning myself, that then more and more people will come in. So the first book was The Family as a Chorus, bringing in Jeffrey and setting up this platform of adding people in. And the second book was Rosalind because I, I needed to let Rosalind off the hook. I didn't want her to be... I wanted her to go into her teen years just being able to be a teenager and not a not a mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then they bring in Iantha and Ben, and so now the family's bigger. And then the third book, I actually send Rosalind away. I send her. She's so free now; she doesn't need to have to be there. And then it's Sky's book because she has to then she has to figure out how to take care of Batty when she'd rather basically just let her drown. And so that's leading then to the fourth book, which is Batty's book, because she's 11. And for 
Batty to really dedicate herself to music, to find her voice, which of course is a metaphor, and for Batty and Sky to start becoming friends and just start becoming friends so that the fifth book can happen. Okay. It kind of goes back to what you were just saying about Mr. Penderwick, about him like directing things but not being controlling about them. I was thinking mm-hmm. when you said that about a conductor and a symphony and how a conductor like keeps everything on the right path, but doesn't actually control the instruments. He just sort of mm. helps people know what to do. And so then I was thinking about that. And then you started talking about the journey of who whose journey each book is about and what they're facing, I guess. And it just felt to me like, yeah, I can see it all. And you started even saying it was a chorus. The first book was the chorus. It just I've got this musical yeah. metaphor playing around in my mind now and I can see it. So. Oh, good. I like musical metaphors. <laughs> but I didn't finish that thing of the family expanding, but then the family does keep expanding through the third and the fourth book. I mean, yes. we... Oh, oh, and then can I just talk about Nick Geiger? So back in terms of people based on real people, Nick Geiger, Tommy's older brother, showed up just as, in the second book, just as an older brother, because Tommy needed an older brother because he was. Because if Tommy were an older brother, he and Rosalind would have just punched each other out early on. He, <laughs> yeah. So he needed to be a younger brother. But at, then as I was writing the fourth book, my real nephew, Nick, who his last name is not Geiger, was, had graduated from Penn State in the ROTC program and was going to Afghanistan. And some, I knew he was in ROTC. I just never... I'm just not that logical about things like that. It just didn't occur to me. He's going to Afghanistan. He's going to war. And at that point, I figured out Nick Geiger's timeline and realized that he too could be in Afghanistan during this time. Mm-hmm. So I have known my nephew Nick since he was little, but he lived in Pennsylvania. I was never that close to him. And this was this incredible opportunity to ask him things. First, I wrote to him. I said, is this okay if I do this? And he said, yes. And then I, I would email him when he was in Afghanistan. Wow. And what I found is that if I wrote him and said, how are you? I wouldn't hear. If I sent him a box of food, I wouldn't hear. But if I wrote and said, are you hot or are you cold? I get an answer right away. It was this very interesting hmm. and the smells and things like that. And not, I, didn't, I don't think I used any of it in the book, but it just helped me know who Nick Geiger would be and what kind of shape he'd be when he came home. I think if I hadn't been talking to Nick and talking to his mother all the time, it wouldn't have occurred to me that the first thing that Nick would do is just sleep and eat for days. I just, I wouldn't do that, but they were always hungry. You know, it was just that. So, and then this summer, my real nephew, Nick, got married. So that Nick Geiger in the fifth book could show up grown up and already married. A lot of voices might tell you that you need to learn how to get better at homeschooling. But I know something about you. You don't actually need to homeschool better. You need to homeschool happier, to have more fun, to smile more, laugh more. You want a twinkle in your eye (laughs) and you want your kids to know deep in their bones that you love homeschooling them. That twinkle is worth pursuing too, because the key to a successful homeschool is a peaceful, happy mother. And that's what we're committed to helping you become at RAR Premium. RAR Premium is a unique program that offers mentoring for you, the homeschool mom, and we offer Open and Go Family Book Club. This is a family book club you can use with all ages from 4 to 17, and it will explore language arts, reading, and we often dip into writing, science, history, all across the curriculum as we uncover so many good and meaningful ideas. The best news is we do all the prep work for you. If you'd like to get a free sample of RAR Premium so you can see if it's a good fit for your family, head to readaloudrevival.com slash sample, or you can just text RAR sample, one word, to the number 33777, and we'll send it your way. Now, back to the show. What was the hardest part about writing the series? Or were any of the books harder to write than the other? That's another question I'm curious about. This 
book was the hardest technically mm-hmm. because my tendency, and I wrote an entire first draft this way and sent it to my editor and I had to redo it, was to make Lydia the pretty much just the observer and narrator of the older girls' stories because the older girls were still, their stories were so primary to me and they were what had to be gotten to the point where I wanted them to be. And Lydia had no story. And that, of course, made a terrible book. <laughs> so, th- so that was technically difficult then to go back there. And when I was talking about getting to know Lydia, I really had to go through that whole process. And then when my editor said no, <laughs> very sweetly, and I went, oh, my gosh, she's right. Then I could go back and then I had to get to know Lydia even more. So technically, that was most difficult. Emotionally, the fourth book was rough. That was really rough because I had to live with Patty through that. It's the only way to write about that because that kind of pain, because I have to go in and I feel like it's almost like method acting. These actors that remember their own tragedy to act tragedy. It's kind of like that. Her whole stomach knots was something well, it's still my go-to anxiety. So so I had to live through her anxiety and her loneliness. That was difficult. It was a tremendous relief to finish that yeah, book. I would imagine. <sighs> well, yeah. so something you just said was that you wrote a whole first draft and you sent it to your editor and she basically, she, right? I think you mentioned it. Yeah. Editor was a she. Okay. She. Basically said, like, we're going to start again. So I love pointing out to kids because, of course, all writers wish that the first thing that came out of our pens or our keyboards was magical. That the revision is where the writing really happens. But I'm curious to know what that felt like when your editor came back and said, OK, we're going to try this again. Well, first of all, she, she, what she kept saying to me is that and what I realized right away is that the architecture was all there. I mean, everything that happened was there, all the characters and everything. But I had to have inner space. It had to be things happening with Lydia. Like if there was a story about a dog in the book, it had to be Lydia's interaction with the dog. It I felt see. like, okay. yeah, it felt like I'd been an idiot and I basically beat myself up a lot about it. I'm lucky that I have a wonderful relationship with my editor. She has the ability to to get inside the book and get inside of what I'm trying to do and help me do better what I'm trying to do, as opposed to the kind of editors, and these exist, that somewhere in the back of their brain think, well, if this, if this were my book, I'd write it this way, and then sure. they try mm-hmm. to get you to do that. And Michelle has done all the books with me. She's as invested with these people as I am. She had her son you know, years ago, and he's growing up on these books and his name's in them. So it's never a slap in the face or I never get angry or anything. I agree with 98% of what she says. And the stuff I don't agree with, I just go no and I tell her why. And she says, let me think about it. And then she comes back and says, you're right. (laughs) I love it. Okay. So you have a really good working rule. And I would imagine by the end of the five books, you know how to work with each other, right? So, yes. But also in terms of children, I happen to be the kind of writer who loves revision. Like I'm working on a book now, the first non-Penderwick novel, and it's going to be just a a one book, no more series for a while. (laughs) And I don't like building the architecture. That first rush of, oh, I can do whatever I want is too much for me, too many possibilities. I love it when that's all in place and then I can really start with the emotions and the funny stuff and the conversations. That's what I love the most. I'm actually a revision-driven writer, which is lucky for me. So that first draft is almost like a relief to get it done because then you have the architecture there and you're like, now I can really start playing with it and with their emotions. Well, not playing with their emotions, but writing, exploring their emotions and writing through their journey and all that good stuff. Right. Okay. Okay. That was the question I was going to ask you is if you're planning on working on any other series or books. So you just answered that for me. No series for a while, but you are working on another novel. Yeah, no series for a while because in Hard Cold Facts, that series, well, it took me 20 years. It would now, because I know how to write books, it would take me 2002, 16 years. And I am about to turn 67. 
So <laughs> right away you can see, oh, I mean, I don't particularly want to go into another series now and lock myself in for the literally the rest of my life. <laughs> but I'm not going to say I'm not going to do one. If, I, if I'm 80 and still feel vibrant and have all my novels, I can say, well, I'll write to 100. But So I'm, I had, while I was writing the Penderwick books, I had I had ideas for other novels and I've been having them, I feel like they're sort of backed up in the queue. So I'm letting them out one at a time now. And and that's fun. It's fun. It's fun to know that the Penderwicks, they're safe. They're where I want them. People ask if I miss writing about them and it's a, I can say no, that's a simple answer. But for me, the characters exist in my head. For me, they don't exist in the books. So for me, they're still where they've always been. <laughs> yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. So what, what are you, so with the book five, again, listeners, book five, The Penderwicks at Last releases today. You can get it anywhere books are sold. And I'm curious, Jeannie, what you're most excited about with the release of book five. When I was a child reader, and even now as a grown up reader, I don't want to read just one trollop. I'll read a whole bunch of trollop all together. Because I conceive this as one story, and because when I read read series when I was a kid, I'd read them all as one story. I've been looking forward to I've been looking forward to getting to interact with the readers whose experience is sitting down and for the first time reading books one through five. So basically I'm looking forward to the the seven and eight year olds talking to them in about ten years. <laughs> I have one wonderful, wonderful young woman who came to meet me when the fourth book came out and gave me a letter. And we've since then become good friends. She's 21 or two now. And she read the first book when she was 10. And then so she grew up with them. So her experience is that. And I get to talk to her about that. And she read the fifth book. And her experience of it was as a grown-up's experience of it now. And she, I think, and I don't want to read too much into this, maybe she'd say I was wrong, but I think that each time she read the book, the books as, as the girls got older, she wanted to return to the feeling she had when she was 10 and Jane was 10 in the first book. And in the last book, she was grown up, and so were the older sisters. And that was such a different experience for her. What I'm wondering is that if a child who picks up the whole series now will more easily, because they'll read them maybe it was in a month, maybe it was a week, maybe six months, whether they'll more easily make that shift to Lydia, who is the now the 11-year-old at Arendelle in the last book. Yeah, that will be interesting. And it kind of, I mean... Little women, I might be getting this wrong, but I guess like little women, little men, Joe's boys, boys, similar, right? Because they start as children, older children, but children in little women. And then you go all the way through Joe as a mother. And I think right. I read them all back to back. I mean, I think they might have even been in a single volume, which is why I'm kind of hesitating to say well, and Anne of Green Gables does the same thing. Right. She ends up doing that. What's interesting in, in both of those cases, though, with Louisa May Alcott and Ellen Montgomery, I just read a brand new biography of Montgomery that's coming out, I think in June, that they, neither of those women wanted to keep writing about those characters. I mean, you know, Louisa May Alcott rather famously didn't want to write Little Women at all. She was just, she wanted to write grown-up novels. There was a book called Moods that's very hard to find. That yeah. was, She wanted to write these rather symbolic things for grown-ups. And little, she wrote Little Women just as Little Women. And then it was the first half of what we now think of as Little Women. And then she was pressured into writing the second half. So I, I think by the time she was writing, she must have been really annoyed by the time she was writing, writing Little Men and stuff. So the difference is that what's very interesting to me is that both those authors and Montgomery was tired of writing about Anne, which is like, oh, geez, I have to. Oh, I don't think I realized um, that. Okay. Yeah, I didn't either until I read this biography that I 
followed their example, except that I wanted to do that. And I kind of wonder at the irony of that. I wanted to make see them grow up. Yeah. So several of your fans asked if there is a place they can send fan mail to you, if they can send a letter to you. Is there a place they can send something in the mail? They can send the letter care of the Broadside Bookshop. And I think you're going to put a link up for that. I will, they, yes. They're, yeah, there's several blocks from me and they will tell me and I'll go pick it up. Perfect. We'll put a, their address in the show notes. So if your kids want to send something to Jeannie, they can send it to Broadside Bookshop. But you probably, I'm guessing that you don't have a whole lot of spare writing time to write back to fans. Am I right when I guess that? You're very right. And thank you for bringing that up. No, I have very little writing time and the mail is wonderful, but I can't focus enough my writing energy on to write letters back. I'm I'm rude. Basically, just tell everybody I'm very rude. <laughs> to their letters. But it's still nice to get them. Well, I think we all would rather that you write us another book to read anyway. <laughs> so I'm good with that. You know, you say, uh, I know there's got to be a limit to your writing energy, right? And so the time you spend writing as many books as we can get from you, we would love to read. So <laughs> we're happy with that. Thank you. Okay, so one final question before we go. For all of the writers listening, our young and old aspiring writers, those of us who are trying to write stories and hope that somebody will read them someday, do you have any tips or advice or do you have like a favorite book that really helped you learn to structure your stories or something that you would love to tell us? I only have one answer for this because it's the way I did it, which is to just read voraciously. The Written language, the way that you tell a, a story in written language is different than oral language. If some things are longer, some things are shorter, there's a different rhythm, there are different words you use. You have to learn that language before you can start creating in it. And the only way to do that is to, to read lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of books. Language will seep into you. It's almost like if you want to be French, you should, the easiest way is to go over to France and listen to everybody. But then the clue is, as you're reading, reading lots and lots and lots of books, is to at some point start paying attention to the ones you like the best. Even if you're rereading the ones, you'll go back and reread. And just enjoy doing that. But then at some point, think, well, what is it I like about these books? Why am I rereading this book? Why did I read that other book only once? Why couldn't I get past the first chapter of that other book? And at that point, you'll already be making decisions about how you're going to write. It's a discipline like anything else, like music, like dance, like anything else. People think because they can speak, they can write a book, and that's just not true. But the good thing about my method <laughs> is that you get to read lots of books. Exactly. And that's, that's real. I mean, that's pretty painless, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say that has got to be the most delicious writing advice, I think, because I think, oh, good, then it all counts. Everything we're reading counts, right? <laughs> when we're trying to write. Oh, every everything you recount. The only thing that doesn't count, I mean, it can count, but, and I, I shouldn't be saying this, your kids, but the only thing that doesn't count is is when you're being forced to write to read something you don't want to read for school. And I hope that doesn't happen too much to these kids. But even then, you can learn by what is it about that that really drives you nuts? Yeah. Why didn't you like reading it? Can I say one more thing? Please do. About wanting to be a writer, I I think the transition that has to happen, and this is. A transition that a lot of people don't make, and you can actually, if you have friends who write, you can see them not make it. There's this point where people want to be a writer because they want to express what's in them, and they want to get it on paper, and they want to make themselves more visible by putting themselves on paper. That's an initial instinct. But when you really become a writer is when your impulse is to communicate with other people. And that, that's really a whole different thing. What I wanted to do, and I think I've done it, is to be part of the conversation that helped, that started with Enesbit 
Edward Eager, C.S. Lewis, Elizabeth N. Wright, Eleanor Estes. And then I'm, I'm talking back to them. I'm saying, thank you for this. I love this part. But I'm also talking forward to the people who are reading my books. And then I tell children, maybe you'll be part of the conversation too, but that you'll be talking back to me someday. And that's really what all, when you study literature, blah, blah, in, in English programs, blah, blah. I mean, that's really what you study is how, where, where did Shakespeare come from? Did he come from just out of nowhere? No, he had some influences, but then who started using him? By the time you get to Jane Austen, you know who she's read, that you know that she's making fun of Richardson in some ways. <laughs> and then you go forward to Bronte, you go to Gaskell, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's when you want to not just put yourself on paper, but to become part of this magnificent conversation over the centuries. That's when you'll feel like there's nothing else you can do and you have to sit down. You'll do it if it kills you. Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. My name is Arthur. I'm nine. I live in England. My favorite book is Ember Falls because it really, there's a lot of betrayal and it really displays what really happens. Hello, my name is Clara. I'm seven months old and I live in England with my brother and sister. My favorite book that mommy reads and my brother and sister read out loud to me is Lift and Look Baby Animals. I really like it because the animals are so tasty to chew on, and I love it. My name is Stella. I live in England. I'm six, and my favorite book is Mrs. Frisbee and the Ranting Men. I like it because it's really easy to see the backstory and what's already happened. Hi, my name is Lucy, and I'm eight years old. I live in Georgia. My favorite book is Pinocchio because he's always getting into trouble. Once he had four, five gold pieces, and then he went and saw a fox and a cow. And as he, he walked along to the Field of Miracles, and they told him that he would have five million gold pieces by the time he was finished, is if he planted them in a field and watered them. So he went and planted them in a field and watered it. And then he went back to get them, and there were no gold pieces. He was very sad. What I learned from this story is to be contented with what you have. Hi, my name is Jada, and I'm eight years old, and I live in Pennsylvania, and my favorite book is Jotham's Journey, and I like it because it's exciting. Bye! Hi, my name is Jasmine. I'm six years old, and I live in Pennsylvania. My favorite book is The Green Ember because Pickett and Heather find a new family. Bye! What's your name? Henry. Henry. How old are you, Henry? Mm, baby. You're big. You're showing two fingers. Are you two? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Where do you live? Uh, home. At home in Ohio? Uh-huh. Yeah. What's your favorite book, Henry? The Mitten. The Mitten by Alvin Tresselt. And why do you like The Mitten? He says, I'm most story spelling flying and sees the mitten in the front I'm hopping by, so he's in, so he's in the summon. Yeah. 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 And you like the mouse and the frog in the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks, Henry. What's your name? Grace. How old are you? Four. And what city do you live in? Minnesota, St. Paul. And what's your favorite book, Grace? The Cat Came Over for Tacos. The Cat Who Came for Tacos? And why is that your favorite book? Because it's super funny. And what's funny in the book? The one that you don't put elbows on the table. Hi, my name is Lila. My favorite book is Geraldine. And my favorite part is when Geraldine waits for the big snow. How old are you, Lila? Four years old. Where do you live? Ohio. What's your name? 
Jackson Rice. Lucas Jackson Rice. How old are you? Can you say two? Two. What is your favorite book? Foundling Fox. The Foundling Fox. What is your favorite part in The Foundling Fox? The badger. The badger. What does the badger do? Yeah, and what does the vixen say to the badger? And he growls. Growls too. And And the vixen says, "Go eat snails and spiders. That's the only food for you." Thank you, Lucas. Thank you, kids. So that's it for season 12 of the Read Aloud Revival podcast. We're taking about six weeks off and then we'll be back with season 13. We've got a really good lineup, so it's pretty exciting. We're not closed for the summer, though, so we're just not putting up new podcasts, but there's actually some really fun and exciting things happening at Read Aloud Revival all summer long. And if you don't want to miss those, you want to be on the email list because you know what? Life gets busy and you'll miss it (laughs) if you aren't on the email list. So make sure you head to readaloudrevival.com, pop your email in there, or you can just text the word books to the number 345-345. That's the word books to 345-345. And that way you'll get emails because we have some fun things coming up and you don't want to miss out. We'll be back in July with new episodes, but in the meantime, go make meaningful and lasting connections with your kids through books. Are you still here? Okay, well, I am too. And I wanted to check to see if you've had a chance to download the samples from RAR Premium yet. RAR Premium is committed to helping you become the peaceful, happy mom you're called to be so that your kids know deep in their bones that you just love homeschooling them and also so that they can become lifelong voracious readers. Get a free sample of RAR Premium by going to readaloudrevival.com sample or by texting the word RAR sample, like it's one word, all squished together, <laughs> to the number 33777.